Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. This episode is brought to you by Dove. You use all the right skincare products for your face, but your body has been missing out. With new Dove Serum Body Wash, you can give your body the vitamin C glow it's been wanting, the hydration boost it's been craving, and the active skincare ingredients it deserves. It's time for your body care era. New Dove Serum Body Wash. Get Dove or get FOMO. Your skin refuses to be defined by age. That's why Agency designed Future Formula, a personalized anti-aging formula prescribed by a dermatology provider to treat fine lines, wrinkles, dark spots, and more. Agency has clinically proven ingredients like tretinoin, which is up to 20 times stronger than over-the-counter retinol. Future Formula by Agency. Get your first month free at withagency.com. That's W-I-T-H-A-G-E-N-C-Y.com. $4.95 shipping and handling subject to consultation. Subscription required. Cancel anytime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast, brought to you by the team here at the magazine. Join us as we chat all things gardening with the nation's favourite experts. Hello, welcome back to Growing Greener, the podcast that explores small steps we can take in our gardens to help make big changes in the environment. I'm Arit Anderson. Today, we're going wild or rewild. Rewilding is one of the hottest and hippest topics or at least words of recent years. Rewild your wardrobe, rewild your family, rewild your shopping, cry magazine headlines. But aren't they missing the point? Rewilding is a serious and transformative approach to restoring ecosystems, reversing ecological decline and sustainable landscape management. But can we use the approaches of large-scale rewilding to make our domestic gardens more sustainable? Can the success that has transformed the wildlife and biodiversity in huge estates also work in an urban window box? Today's guests think they can. One of the most innovative and successful rewilding projects globally is the Nepp Estate in Horsham in Sussex. They are pioneers in the field and the garden. Today I'm joined by three of the gardening team from NEP, Charlie Harper, Moy Feeheller and Susie Turner. Well, Charlie and Susie and Moy, I can't tell you how excited I am to have you on Growing Greener podcast. Sadly, you're at a distance, so I'm waving to you through a screen, but I know that you're with me in spirit. So hello. 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 Hi. I think before we get into the detail of rewilding, let's first of all create a little bit of visual input for our listeners so that they can sort of start to imagine the place that you're working at. So, Charlie, maybe you can just sort of give me 
the wider estate, what does what does NEP actually look and feel like? Well, for most of the year, it's a big muddy puddle. <laughs> no, no, it's 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 a bit bit more than that. It's a three and a half thousand acre farm essentially, which is quite a big farm for British scale. But about twenty three years ago, this farm was. Uh, turned over from a very intensively managed uh, estate to it was really given back to nature. So all of the internal fences were taken out and quite uh, controversially, supposedly, free-roaming animals were introduced into into the mix. And so we've, ha- we've got things like Tamworth pigs, which are, are the proxy species for our wild boar. We've got Old English longhorn cattle, which are a very tough and resilient cattle breed. And we've got Exmoor ponies, we've got red deer and fallow deer, and we've also got beavers. And all of these animals are now roaming freely, and they have made the very intensive-looking farm quite wild. So now it, it, it doesn't look like it did before, because we've got a, a wide range of, of different vegetation structures. It's quite what we call scrubby, and it's, it's a very exciting place to be. Uh, for wildlife. So we've got a healthy population of things like uh, purple emperor butterflies and uh, cuckoos and nightingales and, and things like that. So it's quite an ex- exciting place and it's it's quite different to the very groomed arable fields that there, there once was here. Well, it sounds, and, and I mean, I've been there, but we've, even in you describing it there, though, you can really feel that it's a place that's massively alive. And, you know, Moy, what does it feel like for you going to work every day through that space? What, what do you see? What do you smell? What do you feel? Yeah, I mean, sometimes you sort of feel like you're in a kind of slightly sort of children's picture book kind of thing. When you sort of come in, there might be a a squirrel okay it's a gray squirrel <laughs> but um you know and then and then they'll you, you might see this white stork project that that's at net you might see the stork circling overhead and there's sort of pterodactyl ways and then there might be some fallow deer just sitting there under the trees and uh you know a green woodpecker flies by and uh you definitely get the feeling as you as you drive in that that there's life there, you know, that it's a it's a vibrant, sort of vital place, really. Yeah. I mean, as I remember driving in and kind of seeing the, the long-horned cows and thinking, hmm, are you, are you going to move? And they kind of just sort of lackadaisically just look back as if to say, what are you doing here? So, Charlie, I'm going to come to you first. Just give... Just give us a little bit of your background, because obviously I, I know who you are, but it'd be great for the listeners to, to know about Charlie Harper. So I am the head gardener here at NEP, but I haven't been here for too long. I've been here just over a year now. And originally I trained as an architect, but then got slightly disenchanted with the, the amount of time spent on a, a, a computer screen. And then I went to work for landscape architect Tom Stewart-Smith for a few years. And it was there that I got really into plants. And I actually said to Tom, I need to take some time out to be, be a gardener. So I went to to places like the Chelsea Physic Garden, and uh, I trained at Kew, and then I went back to Tom, worked in a more horticultural capacity, and then it just so happened that this very exciting NEP project was in the office at the time. So worked on the planting planting of this, and, well, the, the opportunity to come in to oversee 
uh, not just the war garden and all of the garden activities at NEP, but also uh, the setting up of a two and a half acre market garden happened as well. So that's what brought me down to NEP. My name is Moi Fierhella and I'm Deputy Head Gardener. I share the role with Susie and we've been, we came here in 2019 and really we sort of oversaw the project of the transformation of the garden really to what it is now. And now predominantly I'm responsible for the ornamental side of things. The gardens around the castle are quite formal so we've got that. We do um, cut flowers and House plants for the house, and then we've got the care and development of the rewarded garden and the kitchen garden, which is the ward garden attached to the castle. So this was a second career for me, and um, I studied horticulture in 2000, and so I've been doing it for 23 years. My name is Susie Turner, and I share the position of deputy head gardener with Moy. Moy and I have worked together since we trained at college, so we've known each other. A very long time and I have worked in evergreen nurseries, I've worked for opera houses and I've run my own gardening business around having children and yeah I came to NEP with Moy at the beginning of the rewilding of the garden here. I know obviously we're going to come into a bit more detail about, you know, you, you work in the productive area of the, of the estate, but what is it, what's it like for you working at NEP? It's wonderful. It's like Moy said, it feels like somebody's turned the volume up on everything. So when you're working in the garden, the level of the bird song is incredible. I think it encourages you to stop because there's so many things to take notice of. So Instead of rushing, perhaps, between tasks in the garden and thinking, right, I've got to tidy up or we've got lots to get ready for safaris, which we do tours of the garden, you perhaps take note of actually what's happening because you can't, you can't help not. It does mean you can't do things like leave gates open, otherwise you find Exmoor ponies in the garden. As has happened. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. That was me. I can own up to that. <laughs> I mean, we've got brilliant footage because of it. Though. So, Real life disturbance yeah. in the garden. We even left a few patches of the droppings mm. um, just, to, just to see what would happen. Yeah, lots of interesting yeah. fungi happened. Dung, dung beetles nice. that was absolutely alive. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. This episode is brought to you by the Inspire Collection by Kalia. You shouldn't settle for just any old pair of leggings. You deserve something better, something designed with you in mind, like the new Inspire leggings by Kalia. Their most versatile collection yet, made for any workout. They're lightweight, buttery soft, breathable, and made with lycra adaptive fiber, which molds to your body for a barely there supportive fit. It's perfect for wherever your wellness routine takes you. Shop the Inspire Collection by Kalia now, exclusively at Dick's Sporting Goods. So that's the thing that it's just it, it's like it's a big massive experiment that's so working. I mean, I came up and, and we filmed up there, and it was a incredibly hot summer's day. But that you know, what you're describing there is all of the things, and I felt like I was going on to some sort of 
English savannah of, of some sort, really. It was quite quite an amazing um, feeling, as you said, and really important. And of course, we're going to go into more detail through the podcast, but I think it's important that people understand that this is this is large scale, but what we're going to do over the uh, course of this episode is to to talk about how and why it's so important, the work that's being done there, how it can be distilled um, down into a, a garden um, a size. I should also say that just to sort of locate people or, or position people in the country, NEP is in West Sussex. We're on the, the low wheel of Sussex, which is just in the shadow of the South Downs. So we're not on the chalk, we're on the wheels and clay. And it's a very densely populated area. Uh, we're right underneath the, the Gatwick flight path and uh, surrounded by dual carriageways. So really, we are this little wild enclave in, in what is otherwise a very populated area. Which is what kind of, I guess, makes it quite magical, really. The fact that it just sort of sits there like a little jewel with a great big Boeing 747, whatever, going overhead. But I think what would be a really good place to start is what is rewilding? Rewilding is a very popular term and some people might be getting sick of, of it. It's used in lots of very fashionable contexts. But rewilding is, it does have a practical definition and um, here at NEP, we see that as being the restoration of natural processes, which uh, otherwise we humans have removed. So natural processes are the interactions between plants and animals and the environment, which really shape our planet. And most of the country now is is used for agriculture and uh, is fenced off. And uh, there are lots of these different areas of disturbance, these interactions that now not possible. So for uh, key natural processes which we have reintroduced are grazing animal disturbance. So that is the trampling, the debarking, the 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 rootling as we call it with the this is what we refer to when a, a pig sticks its snout into the ground and turns over the ground layer. All of these areas of disturbance are natural processes and that is what we are putting back into the system. So that is probably the best definition. But the term rewilding was actually coined in the early 90s in the United States, and it referred to three the three Cs, as they called it, which are cores, corridors, and carnivores. And carnivores is not so practical in a British context because you need lots of unbroken land area to be able to include carnivores into the mix. But we uh, have replaced that C with keystone species, which is a much more understandable term. And by keystone species, we refer to uh, a species on which an ecosystem is is dependent on or, or something that would basically control how an ecosystem develops. So for that, it, you know, a beaver is a very good example as a keystone species. And that is when, when we talk about gardens, we are saying that how can you, and I think we'll talk about this in more depth later, but how can you take rewilding into a garden setting us, the gardeners, are the, those keystone species because we are the, the the species on which that ecosystem is changed by. I think in the first instance, this idea that rewilding is a process is, I think, something that we need to kind of carry on as a thread because a lot of the other garden terms, whether it's wildlife gardening or you know, brownfield sites or all of those other different things that are out there, all very important and all that have um, things that um, us gardeners can work toward. But I really like the idea that we're thinking about the process 
of nature. And I guess that's the driver that's happening in the garden. And I'd like to hear maybe, Moy, you can just talk a little bit about how the, some of those processes sort of play out. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things about when you hear the word rewilding is this idea that you shut the gate and walk away. And then most gardeners think, well, that would just be a bramble and nettle hell. And why would you want to do that sort of thing? And when we're talking about rewilding at NEP, we use this word kaleidoscope a lot. And the idea is, is that it's a really dynamic, constantly changing picture. So if you're thinking about it in garden terms, that we often think about gardens as a fixed picture, don't we? We want it to look like this. And then we try to keep it looking like this. But when you're talking about rewilding in gardens, it, it's sort of useful to think about it more as an ecosystem, like Charlie says, whatever size your space is, it, it is an ecosystem. And we're the drivers within it. And rather than trying to hold dominance over that space, you're seeing yourself as much more as part of it. And you're not working towards a fixed picture. You're always part of the dynamic process of it's always changing. And that boom and bust cycle of nature. So something dies, that's not a bad thing, you know. So it's being part of your garden uh, as opposed to dominating your garden. Yeah. And I love I love the term of the kaleidoscope because I can visualise myself as a child with the, with an actual kaleidoscope making all of those thousands and thousands of images. And I think, you you know, as you've said, it's this change and dynamicness that's going through is that a word, dynamicness. Dynamism. Dyn- dynamism. <laughs> dynamism. There you go. Um, that's going through the garden, especially when we have been in a state of low maintenance, <laughs> you know, people wanting to do almost to do nothing, almost to do nothing in their gardens. Whereas it sounds with rewilding, where it's in the opposite way that we don't necessarily have to still garden so much, but we allow this process um, to go to go on, which is which is really great. Coming back to you, Charlie, can you just tell us a little bit about how the garden itself come about? Yeah, sure. So we have got uh, a wall garden. Uh, it's, it's nearly uh, one and a half acres. So quite a substantial size, really. But that is bolted on to the main house on the estate, which is uh, lived in by the owners, including the author Isabella Tree, who wrote the book Wilding, which a lot of people may have may have read, and also her recently published book, uh, The Book of Wilding, which is a, a more of a handbook on, on rewilding. So uh, the wall garden, it sits next to that, that house. And before we got involved and uh, started doing slightly different biodiversity experimenting things. It was just mainly lawn. It was a, a croquet lawn, most of it. Wow. Tell us, what happened? What happened to that lawn? What, what, is it, what, what was the process? Do you want to talk about that, Susie? Actually, the first weekend that we started here, there actually was a croquet tournament. Then very rapidly, the whole of the top of the croquet lawn was scraped off. And then we set about creating topography within the wall garden. So the turf we actually have stored and we're going to use that to make loam for potting compost. And then we were really lucky that there was a 
farm building on the estate that was being brought down. And we were able to crush that up and mix it with some land-based sand. And we were able to create topography over what was before. And in, well, I mean, it actually wasn't that flat, but it should have been a very flat croquet lawn. <laughs> and so what that has meant is within the rewilded section of the wall garden, we now have so many different conditions. We went from flat two-dimensional conditions into different aspects, north-facing, south-facing, dry, fertile, poor. And so it's given us a complete range of habitats, which we didn't have before. Well, we had the one flat croquet lawn. We scraped off some areas of just the topsoil, so that we were just working on subsoil and purely covering it with a mulch of sand so that plants that like to grow in fertile conditions but like to keep their necks dry in winter were able to survive in those conditions or even thrive in those conditions. And then we experimented. So we've got 1.8 metres up and 1.8 metres down. In the centre of the garden, there's, well, it was an ephemeral lake in the middle of uh, winter, but it's now an ephemeral pond. So we've got a huge range of conditions just by varying the topography. Bringing it back to rewilding also, all of the decisions that we, we make in this garden are based on the principles of rewilding. So our going 1.8 metres down into the middle of the croquet lawn was inspired really from what I mentioned earlier, the, the pig rootling, the turning over of the ground layer to create all of those variations of topography. Because once you've got three dimensions, you've suddenly got a range of different conditions because you've got wet bits. As Susie said, we've got an ephemeral lake, um, it, which, which is, a, a piece, is a body of water which is wet for half the year and then dries out for the other half of the year. And then we've got dry bits and then we've got uh, sunny bits and we've got shady bits and we've got different bands of productivity. As Susie said, we've got bits of crushed concrete. So, we, so we've got the very impoverished uh, soils and then we've got the topsoil. So that, that's, that was what inspired that decision. And, I, and with the, um, the ephemeral water, which, as you say, you know, when it's wet, it's wet and when it's dry, it's dry. What happens in that sort of space? Because, of course, most of us gardeners would be sitting there saying, well... What do you plant in that then? What would how, what can cope with baking heat one minute and, and drought and then the next minute it's got to cope with basically a floodplain? There's actually a surprisingly large palette of, of plants actually that can can cope with that. A lot of plants have actually evolved to cope with those sort of conditions. So there's some plants that have uh, evolved to thrive on, on dried creek beds, for example. So it's full of water for half the year and then it, it's dried out for the other. I should just say that all of this was planted in November 2021 and April 2022. So it's still quite a fresh project. But the plants so far that have done really well are probably unsurprisingly things like uh, irises, things like water irises and iris siberica, uh, which have got those really tough rhizomes and they can cope with pretty much everything. But other things, including things like amsonia and veronicastrum and eupatorium and... Sangosorba, all of those things can can do really well, even though they've been completely drowned for six months of the year, especially in, we had minus 12 in the winter of 2022, and, you know, prolonged periods of below freezing temperatures, and all of these things survived underwater in those conditions. So it's amazing how many things will do fine uh, in those sort of conditions. I mean, it's funny because you, you don't, 
a nurse, if you go on a nursery website, say, you look for plants for dry conditions or plants for wet conditions, but you don't necessarily look for plants that are dry for half the year and then wet for the other. So it's about thinking about how the plants have, have evolved, what conditions they've evolved to, to thrive in, which will give you your answers. Well, it's, it's, it's really, really important work because obviously with climate change and we know that these extremes that we've been experiencing are, are, are becoming more and more frequent. So I think anywhere, like um, your places like yourself, which are, are really being experimental, is going to be nothing better than, you know, excellent for all of us gardeners to be able to, to learn from. So really, really fascinating. Now, Creating these different topographies, I guess this kaleidoscope that Moy mentioned about this, making sure that the land is dynamic. How does that relate to the core? You talked about core corridors, carnivals. Now, in my little, very tiny urban garden, possibly could do core, if I can understand that from you in a minute. Not so sure about carnivore. I don't really want to refer to myself as being a little pig or something. How does that work? I mean, like, you know, some people might think I am, but you know. Um, how does that work in, in the garden? I, I mean, I've been in horticulture um, since for about 23 years. And it sort of amazed me that when I got to NEP and I saw animals interacting, you know, the, the cows and the and the horses and things with plants that as as a gardener it never occurred to me before that plants have developed over thousands of years in response to the actions of herbivores essentially either being trampled or eaten or ignored and we sort of tend to think of them you know it's in secrets in the name ornamental isn't it that we tend to think associate them with visual things and i think the change in your core which is your garden your green space is now when i do something i think okay would this happen if a bunch of sheep or goats or or pigs came in here so for example you know in terms of if there was a load of dead stems, let's say, in your garden, so they're a perennial plant and they've uh, they've died back. And if no animal came through, they would just stay there until the weather made them fall over. So that's one aspect of it where you might be, you know, there is that element of leaving things and that dynamism of some things stay and some things go. And so in other places, you might have a perennial or a, a shrub where the leaves are falling off and then you think, well, okay, if uh, if an animal walked through here, all of the stuff, they would snap things, they would pull a load of um, dead stuff through their hooves and onto their fur and all of that sort of thing. So I think in terms of not thinking of yourself so much as an animal, but if an animal came through your space, what would they do? And there is that dynamism of them moving through a, a space that they're not there all the time because animals are just, they, they're just like us. They want sweeties. So they, they are going to go and find the next thing that is the, you know, the juiciest, most freshest thing. So, you know, when you're pruning your roses, if you look at ponies, as soon as those little green shoots comes out, they'll be eating those new shoots when there's hardly any, any grass on the, on the ground in the winter. And that plant has evolved to respond to that so it will bifurcate and make two shoots instead of one and it will produce more flowers 
because it's responding to that that uh, action of a herbivore. And so if you're always thinking of that sort of behaviour of animals, and also it tells you when to do things, because you know animals are much more likely to browse on woody shrubs or perennials when there's less grass around or when there's less stuff that they normally eat around. So it can be really informative and sort of take the take the onus off of you a lot of the time, which is is a really nice feeling because you're not this kind of uber designer. You're just noticing what nature does and you're trying to copy it. That's a really, really interesting way of reframing um, how you think about the space because I know when I come down to see you guys and you know, we were filming and I'd be walking alongside Charlie and all of a sudden, snap, off, off. I think, what's he doing? Sort of dead head. No, no, I'm just being a little little bunny rabbit now. And that you could, you know, having all these, uh, all, oh, no, no, actually, no, no, I'm now going to be, I was thinking, okay, this is an interesting way to go on. But I can definitely understand the process, which is more an intervention as opposed to gardening. Is that is that, would that be fair to say? Yeah. Let's just, Go back on this aesthetic. I want. Who wants to talk to me about the dirty paths? Susie, you go for it. <laughs> I always get dirty paths. Susie, I feel like I'm getting typecast here with the dirty <laughs> paths. Um, well, the dirty paths are in the kitchen garden side of the wall garden. So, previous to Tom Stewart Smith's redesign of the garden, we had Breeden gravel paths that divided up the various beds. Which were flamethrowered to keep them immaculate. That's that's the sort of that that is a very traditional sort of approach to gardening. It's keeping it static. Nice. You know, keeping it completely immaculate by just zapping the weeds. Yeah, it was designed to be low maintenance, wasn't yeah. it? But actually, you know, most things that are designed to be low maintenance don't tend to be low maintenance. Mm. So what we did with the edges of the breed and gravel paths was that we busted them up. Um, and we incorporated the existing soil that was beneath with some of the breed and gravel so that we created this free draining, perfect condition for a selection of xeric Mediterranean herbs that we could grow. So we broke up all of the edges of the paths and then we capped it back down with the original breed and gravel just to lock in the moisture so roots could be kept cool in the summer. And what it means is that we have now this transition zone. So from the herbaceous or the edible beds in the kitchen garden, we now have this beautiful self-seeding, smells incredible, edible edge that ecologists refer to as an ecotone. So it's this transition zone between bare areas, which we know that some ground nesting invertebrates, um, solitary bees, for example, it's really, really important in their habitat. We have a perfect transition zone now between the very fertile, rich beds. When we had our biodiversity audit done, our invertebrate survey of the garden, one key piece of advice that we were given was don't rip everything out at once. If you're going to redesign parts of your garden, don't throw everything out Mm. because what you're doing is you're removing opportunity And so what we did was rather than changing the garden, the kitchen garden all at once, we've transitioned it over. And that means that we've kept things that aren't edible within the kitchen garden. But it means that we're transitioning the garden over and the dirty paths were a really, really key part of that. And I think talking about the aesthetic of the garden, one thing that I think 
a lot of people can relate to when they come is that if you want to have a path in your garden, that's totally fine. And if you want to have quite a neat looking path in your garden, but not need to flamethrower it or weed killer it, then the dirty paths provide a really, really nice, attractive transition for a lot of people mm. because they can they can get on board with that as well as it being edible and useful. So I think it's it's been a big success, hasn't it, the dirty paths? Yeah. And it sounds to me as if that's a way that as, as gardeners we could embrace that quite quickly i have um uh, some paved areas in my well it's a uh, brick sets actually and um i've put them down it's a small garden so i had to get my pathways in first but the intention is is that once as a family we've worked out our routes which is probably jumping over borders but anyway we're going to then take out some of the the sets of places that we don't really step then the idea is that we will then take those out and plant into them so again I think within anybody at home, I'm guessing that you can go down your clean path and and make it dirty by by lifting out either if you have smaller stones, lift them out. Or you know, we're speaking with uh, John Little, and you know, he talks about the fact that if you have concrete or little cracks that have appeared, just slightly tease them open a bit more. And I guess that would be your dirty path, and you could drop some seeds into that. Be that type of thing. Yeah. Absolutely. How does it work in terms of pest and disease control? Because you're going now from sort of this more wilder, freer area to all of a sudden you're producing food. And of course, that's always the bit where the, con- the high control comes in. How do you manage that? Susie, maybe you just talk to us about that. Well, I come from a very traditional family of exhibition veg growers. So I come from the other end of the spectrum of basically trying to create an ecosystem so the way that we look at vegetable gardening within the wall garden here now is that we're just aiming to reach a functioning ecosystem so that means that sometimes we have terrible crops of things we're very very lucky in that the burrows are very forgiving and they're very willing to try things that new things so we've added a lot of unusual and edible vegetables into the garden but also Instead of netting anything, what we'll maybe do is we will prune the very spiky ornamental pears in the kitchen garden and we will use them as a fairly vicious barrier for pigeons because basically one of the only predators in the garden for the vegetables that is difficult for us to deal with is pigeons. Everything else we just kind of work around. So flea beetle, we just plant a little bit later. Um, If we're worried about aphids on broad beans, then I tend to put a lot of overwintering fennel at the end. So we build up a good population of ladybirds so they get a good head start. We don't separate out veg as we used to do. So we do much more of a mixture. So there's ornamental, there's herbs, we intercrop. And what we found is that we're just building up a decent population of things parasitic wasps we've got a larger population of parasitic wasps in the garden now and so they help us you can actually watch them dealing with our aphids so it it's less about sort of you know my grandfather would be out and picking slugs off in his slippers with a torch at three o'clock in the morning you know we've gone the other end away from that and now we've got currants in our ornamental beds so that we can share as opposed to trying to put a barrier between everything and and the things that we want to eat. I mean, diversity really is the is the key to everything in life. 
But the, 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 main, the main goal with the project that we've got at NEP, it's to boost biodiversity. And so if you, if you understand that we as humans are just a, a sort of weave in the sort of the, the fabric of life, the more stuff that you can chuck into the mix, the more, you, more different species you can support, the more predators for all of your pests that you can, you can support too. So diversity really is the key to, to pest-free veg gardening as well. There are other, do you remember that, um, the leeks? The, that we oh, we the planted leeks and the salad. yeah we we planted some leeks didn't eat them all or the or the house didn't eat them all and uh, some of them bolted they had these beautiful allium sort of flower heads and we left them there and what they did or what we think that they did was create a, a sort of baffle next to the kaolettes that were just coming up next door and so you had one bed which were you know they were attacked by pigeons a little bit but the kaolettes that had the the baffle of these mm. the leek seed heads were completely untouched and we think that is because pigeons have quite poor eyesight and they just couldn't see the kaolettes through these moving seed heads and a lot of vegetable gardeners would have removed those and made made way for for something else or or just removed them because you know technically they'd bolted and it might be seen as a failure of a crop um but that's not what we what we do we 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 just pivot and it's not failure you know, trying to step away from this idea that we just have to tidy up all the time because actually what we might be creating is a condition for something within that ecosystem that needs that perfect dead habitat. Mm. It's that it's mindset all the time. It's looking at every everything in the garden and saying, can you provide some vital link for some species? Um, it, it changes our, the way that we look at what most people regard as weeds as well. It's about seeing the opportunities and everything and that's what really drives how we manage the garden. Some of the things we've talked about have really um, helped to open the lens of the garden in a different way. I, I think that all of the things that you've spoken about, I know that they can certainly translate into smaller gardens. But I really want to just finish on now some some sort of key tips that can really distill into a small space. Because, you know, we know that there are people that will be listening that maybe have a window box and go, this is so not relevant for me. Or somebody who has a small garden who's got so many messages. How could this rewilding um, be introduced into our spaces? Something that we haven't talked about, which I think that people are becoming more aware of, is soil and and this, you know, incredible, complex and largely uh, undiscovered uh, arena that soil is with all the mycorrhizae fungi and all the organisms in there and, you know, one handful, you know, a hundred million organisms in there. And, and so if you are thinking about diversity and you've got a very small patio or window box or you think about it one pot of soil how many living things are in there how what is going on there if you could you know expand your vision and and make shrink yourself and how uh incredibly diverse and complex that is so you know no to chemicals please because you think you it's like you're flame throwing your entire garden if you do that to to your soil by putting um, pesticides or herbicides in there so that's one thing and like we've been talking about complexity so even if you have only got a few pots or a window box if you can build complexity in, in different sorts of plants and different even you know you could put some rocks or some dead wood in there or you could you know you're just thinking about layering complexity and every single uh, diversity you introduce into your little space 
and you can just do it on a small scale, is that you are providing an opportunity for uh, a different species. So if everything is exactly the same, then you're pretty much going to get the same characters coming. If you just, you know, make it as complex as like when you're a child, you know, you like to build a little thing, you know, a little, a little world, don't you, in, in miniature. So I, I'd say, you know, complexity and uh, leave off the chems. Yeah, leave the chems. That's a really good one. Thank you, Moy. And Charlie, your top tip or thought process for, for the smaller garden owner? I, before I came to NEP, I lived in, in Camden, North London, and I had a roof terrace and it was a, it was a, a story up, so no soil. Uh, so it was all about pots rather than thinking, oh no, I don't have any soil, so I can't do anything. I was trying to think about the range of different plants and the the functions of, of each. So if you if you change your mindset and think about the function of every element of the garden, then you can have some fun with, with varying the range of different plant species uh, for their different functions in your garden. So you don't feel like this doesn't apply to you because it, it, it will. Oh, well, that's really uplifting and positive um, tips from all of you and um, which is brilliant so thank you for that and I just want to say you know that the work that's going down at Nepalm, I know you get a lot of scrutiny um, about you know is it right is it working um, what does it all mean I think that the attitude um, that you've all taken which is we're experimenting we're finding out is so freeing and the fact that you're also opening up those gates for people to come down and have a it is a safari isn't it a garden safari that they can come and learn um learn about what you guys are up to which is just great and that's the joy of gardening isn't it it's it's sharing which is what um nep is doing so oh well thank you all so much and i wish i could be down there with you but i shall uh have to get down at some anytime thank you moy i shall get back at some point so just take care and i hope the rest of the season is all good and i shall hopefully see you all soon thanks a lot Aaron. yeah thanks Aaron. See you soon. Thanks, Eric. Thank you. Bye. Make sure to subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. New episodes will be released every Thursday. For more information on everything we've discussed today, go to gardenersworld.com 